0: Well, we're continuing in our study of the gospel according to Mark. We're in chapter three. I guess I'll just kind of review a couple of things. Uh, I'm never quite sure where everyone is and if you're caught up, but the gospel of Mark is our shortest of the four. It's the earliest of the four written probably about A.D. 49, A.D. 50, perhaps A.D. 51. John's, um, or Mark's, primary source was Peter, and that's reflected in a lot of the, the narratives as well as the dialogue that Peter would have shared with Mark as his main resource. Mark is interested in trying to prove one thing. That If you go back to verse 1, there's the beginning of the gospel of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, and that's the thesis of the book, and he is proving that, that he is the, the Christ, the Messiah but he's also the Son of God. And those two themes are developed throughout the book. And uh, as we're moving into chapter 3, we've seen his presentation as the Messiah, his baptism, and so on, and then the response of people. And then as we finished a little bit last week, five examples of conflict. That fifth and final example is the first six verses of chapter 3. And then uh, in verse 13, Mark gives us a summary of the calling of the twelve. He, we had seen the calling of four disciples a little bit earlier in the book. Now he summarizes the calling of the twelve. And I'm interested in only one thing about this passage, because it's very familiar. It just lists the twelve. But it's the, the purpose of Christ calling the disciples. So if you look at verse 13 and 14 with me, <clears throat> I read from the ESV translation, so especially with verse 14, it might be a little bit different than the one you have, if you have NASB or NIV or whatever. Verse 13, And he, that's Jesus, went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he had desired, and they came to him. Now that's a general statement. Then, verse 14, he appointed 12. So, the 12 are, of course, well, let me, let me put it this way. Why do you think he appointed 12? Why didn't he appoint 10? Why didn't he appoint 15? Why didn't he appoint 20? Well, if you're thinking, and you're, you're trying to, to, okay, 12's a number I've seen before in the Old Testament. The 12 tribes of Israel. The 12 sons of Jacob each one becoming one of the, the tribes. And as you know, the, Israel in the Old Testament is built around the 12 tribes. Each one of the 12 got a different land grant. That's recorded for us at the end of the book of Joshua. So I think it's rather obvious, even though he doesn't state it, that Jesus calls 12 to parallel the 12 tribes of Israel. And notice notice what... Mark says. He appointed 12, whom he also named apostles. And so you have the 12 who are disciples, those who follow, those who study under, those who are mentored by a master. That's what a disciple is. But Mark tells us, and this is common in all four gospels, they also have the title of apostle. Now, let's review what that means. An apostle is an office in the early church, but an apostle has two aspects to it. It's one sent out, sent out with authority, sent out with authority. So Jesus is naming 12 whom he will send out with his authority. And that's very important. That is one of the reasons—now, we're not in one of those letters right now, but that's one of the reasons when you study the 13 epistles of Paul in the New Testament, he delights in calling himself an apostle, because that means he's not only sent out, sort of, and commissioned, if you will, but he has the authority of the one who commissions him, who sends him, in that case, Jesus. That's the case with these 12. Now, what I want you to notice is what follows is the phrase, so that. And that introduces a purpose clause. So in choosing the 12, whom he also called apostles, Jesus has three purposes. Note those three purposes. One, so that they might be with him. Now, that doesn't only mean to walk around Galilee with him. But the idea of being with him is to be mentored by him, to be instructed by him, to be taught by him. Secondly, that he might send them out to preach. There's that idea of an apostle, a sent out one, but sent out to preach. And what are they going to be preaching? What is the content? They're preaching the message that Jesus is the Christ the Savior of the world, the Son of God. And then third, and have authority to cast out demons. The word authority is exousia, which is a very powerful New Testament word, but that authority that they have is a dispensed authority. It's not their authority. It's authority that's been given to them, by given to them by Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. And notice authority to do primarily one thing cast out demons now that is extremely important because we have studied that in our in our overview here of mark that one of the aspects and characteristics of the incarnation of jesus and his 3 years of public ministry is to in effect invade satan's kingdom to plunder Satan's kingdom. Jesus Christ, the light of the world, has entered the kingdom of darkness. And when Jesus casts out demons, uh, the Lord Jesus will call them fallen angels, he is announcing, he that is Jesus, and now with the authority given to the, the apostles, they also announcing the new order has dawned a new order has been established. We pray in the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As we pray that, the answer to that prayer begins, it continues today, but it begins with the public ministry of Jesus and then the apostles that follow him. And then when he goes back to the Father in the ascension, those apostles then go out and change the Mediterranean world, and then they just mentor others who then mentor others who then mentor others, then that's how the gospel spreads. So I, I don't want to minimize the importance of verse 14. That's one of the unique contributions that Mark makes here, is he helps us to understand why did Jesus call twelve? It parallels the twelve tribes of Israel, and he has three purposes. In calling the 12 whom he also names as apostles, to be with him, to be mentored and taught by him, to be sent out to preach the message of the kingdom, and to have authority, exousia, authority to cast out demons. It's an extraordinary summary of the authority and purpose of these 12, why Jesus called them. And then, as we see this many times in the Gospels, it's in every one of the Gospels, they are now listed, the 12. He appointed the 12. In every one of the listings, and they're in all four Gospels, and they're in the book of Acts, the beginning of the book of Acts, Peter, Simon, is always first. And Judas is always last. In every listing of the 12, that, there is a little bit of a difference of how the other 10 are ranked. But the first is always Peter, and the last is always Judas. So if you look at just the listing, Judas, excuse me, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he also gave the name Boan Ener- Energist, which means sons of thunder, Andrew, Phil, Andrew is the brother of Peter, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, and Simon the Canaan, Canaanian, and then finally Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So the listing of the twelve, there are, I believe, five listings in the New Testament. In every one of those listings, Simon or Peter is always first, Judas is always last. And so You have this important declaration by uh, Mark, uh, of course, summarizing what Jesus did. They have this declaration of the calling, now, of the Twelve. So, you look now at verse 20. What what you see here is what is called a sandwich literary structure. Now, that may confuse you a little bit, but it really is, is a very famous and very uh, familiar and and something that mark does a lot in his writings he tells you something as you'll see in verse 20 and then verse 21 and then there's another aspect of jesus ministry and then in verse 31 he goes back to the family of jesus so it's like a sandwich two pieces of bread and the meat in between so the family theme is in verse 20 and 21 Then you have the teaching about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And in verse 31 through the end of the chapter, verse 35, they're back on Jesus' family. Like two pieces of bread with meat in between. It's called a sandwich literary device. That is what Mark is doing here. So let's look at the piece of bread that deals with the family. Then he went home. Now that would mean Capernaum. It doesn't mean Nazareth. It means Capernaum. Because remember, in his Galilean ministry of two years, his home base was Capernaum. And the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, Nazareth is about oh, 18 miles from Capernaum. They went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. Now, here is this is a very fascinating an interesting early observation that answers this question. How did the brothers and sisters of Jesus regard Jesus in the early years of his ministry? Did they accept him? Did they follow him? Did they become his disciples? Did they become apostles? The answer is no. As a matter of fact, and this is also repeated in in Matthew and, and, and in Luke, they are looking at Jesus as if he is a mentally unbalanced religious fanatic. That's how they're looking at Jesus. As a matter of fact, his brother James and his brother Jude, James and Jude wrote New Testament books, I'm sure you recognize the names, James and Jude did not put their faith in their brother, Jesus, until after the resurrection. And so you have this—this is their early response. No, they grew up with him. They knew him. And he is not going around doing miracles when he's growing up. He's not going around teaching that he's the Son of God. And so now he's doing that, and they say, oh, there's something wrong with our brother. He's mentally unbalanced he's a religious fanatic. we got to lock him up for his own safety. Now, in a minute, we'll go down to verse 31, where again, we see his mothers and his brothers, how are they responding to him? But in between those two pieces of bread, if I can use again the, the sandwich metaphor, we have a very important teaching can I ask a question
1: before oh, uh, we get yes. off the first lo- slice? Um, yes. <laughs> um, in um, in the ESV, it re- renders Simon Simon the Zealot as a um, uh, can. What what is the connection um, to that? Because you you called it by the the underlying Greek word is does that mean Zealot? Is it
0: because yeah. I. It, it can it can have that it can have that um, what's the word nuance yeah, yeah. and I mean I th- you know who the zealots were don't you yeah okay yeah. so to identify him in, in in either way is to say something which is really quite remarkable actually mm. one of the disciples of Jesus who had been a political revolutionary now is following Jesus. Right, and I mean it's it's it, it, it really does illustrate the broad nature of Jesus' appeal. Every one of those disciples is is kind of unique. Uh, you know, Matthew's a tax collector and so on, but that Simon, who was a revolutionary,
1: uh-huh.
0: is is joining the band is really extraordinary. I mean, it really is. He is, and we know nothing about him. I mean, we don't have a biography of him. We don't have any details about him in the New Testament material. But that he's identified that way with either one of those labels Uh indicates the extraordinary nature of Christ's calling. He purposely chose a revolutionary.
1: Was Judas um, Iscariot considered a a zealot? There's been a, a theory that he was motivated, and they've done this in, in art sometimes, but I can't find the references to it, that he was trying to force Jesus's hand the way that the Pharisees were trying to save,
0: you know their own position and the. Well, the- I, I don't think I'm not aware of any major scholarly work that he was a zealot, but that he was trying to motivate Jesus to be the political leader. And when he saw Jesus wasn't going to do that, that is one of the reasons why he was motivated to betray Jesus. So That's a possibility a, it's a well, but we don't know it's a, we don't know a, that no so The only so thing we know the only thing we know about Judas other than that he betrays Jesus, hmm. his name Iscariot is uh, where he's from, a little village just a little bit to the north of Jerusalem. Judas is the only non Galilean that Jesus calls of the twelve, eleven were all from Galilee. Remember, you you can look on the map on page 7. Remember, Galilee's in the north there. Judas was not. Judas was called from the the little tiny town north of Jerusalem, Escaria, which is Iscariot. He's the only one that's not from Galilee, which, again, is remarkable. You, You know, why did he knew what Judas would do? He knew Judas would betray him. But he chose Judas, the only one that wasn't from Galilee which also is another aspect that could indicate that perhaps the other 11 didn't really accept Judas the way they did. Because there was, and that's somewhat understandable, I suppose. I mean, even in the United States, you think of north, south, west, the regions. The Galileans and the Judeans did not necessarily get along. And so that Jesus calls one who's not from Galilee could have created some tension among the eleven. Uh, but we we're speculating there. Okay. And I, I'm not aware of any major New Testament evidence or extra biblical evidence that Judas was a zealot, but Judas's motivation to betray Jesus could be: hey, I expected you to lead a liberation from Rome, and you're not doing it. Yeah,
1: he was he was kind of like the inside, you know, the the when I see this. It wasn't that. Oh, I see that you're not going to go along with my plan, so I'm going to betray you. It was more of, okay, you're the political leader that we've all been waiting for, and forget this gospel stuff. Now it's time to force your hand and make you take
0: the possibly. I'm that's- not. I'm personally not convinced that's the real motivation of Judas, because honestly, um, Russ, we just don't know. We just so it's complete. We do not have. A tremendously valid evidence that gets inside Judah's head uh-huh. and to understand why does he decide to betray the Lord? I mean, are, when we get to that in our study of Mark, I'm going to do some speculating, but, you know, we're only in right. chapter 3. We have a long ways to go before
1: we get... No, I understand that. If you had anyway. some insights that I hadn't no, dug up. Yeah. That I was asking. I mean, no need to create
0: anything. Okay. <laughs> Let's look at then we have the first piece of bread, verse 30, 20 and twenty-one. We'll get to the second piece in verse thirty-one. His literary technique it is using a very favorite one that Mark uses. In between that, verses twenty-two through to verse excuse me, <clears throat> through verse thirty, is what is usually called the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit teaching. Now, I'm going to want you to have Mark 12, excuse me, Matthew 12. So if you want to you know, like get your Bible open to that or get your computer or whatever you're using and put your thumb in Matthew 12, we're going to look at that a little bit uh, in a little bit because Matthew 12 gives us an important piece of information about the Lord's t- response and teaching about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, that is not in the Gospel of Mark. So again, if you can kind of get Matthew 12 out and have it close by, we're going to look at that in just a little bit. But let's look at Mark. I want to read from verse 22 through verse 27, and then I want to make a couple of comments. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, now remember scribes they are more than likely Pharisees. These are the teachers. These are the lawyers. These were the specialists in Old Testament law, and I think that's one of the reasons why Mark is making sure we identify. These are not only the Pharisees, these are the scribes, most of whom were Pharisees. These are the specialists in the law. These were the people who taught the law to the people often. And they came down from Jerusalem. Now, remember, Jesus is in Galilee. He's in Capernaum, as we've said many times, on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. And to come down from Jerusalem, that means they're coming from Judea, 2,500 feet above sea level, down to the Sea of Galilee, which is about 600 feet below sea level. And so they are going down. So the geography of of the two is, is... is illustrated in the language Mark chooses to use. Now, notice what they are saying. And they're responding to what Jesus has been doing, what Jesus has been saying, and they have to explain it. Because Jesus is exhibiting supernatural power and supernatural authority. These teachers of the law have to explain this. And they only have two options: he is either of God or he's of Satan. and so what do they choose? He is possessed by Beelzebul. Now you might want to write in your notes, Second Kings chapter one, verse two. Beelzebul is a Canaanite god, a Canaanite God that is associated with satanic power, literally the Lord of evil spirits. That's what Beelzebul means, the Lord of evil spirits. So, I mean, men, this is unbelievable in the real meaning of that overused word. This is unbelievable. They are attributing the supernatural work of Jesus to Satan because you only have two choices when you see supernatural power being exhibited and they go on possessed by Beelzebub and by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. So, I mean, <laughs> I mean, it, it is, it's incredible. So they're, they're, they're going way out there in terms of logic and intellectual honesty and in attributing the supernatural power of Jesus to Satan. Now, What what I want you to do is look at how Jesus responds, and I want to read that. Then we're going to go to Matthew for a minute. And he—now that would be Jesus—called them to him and said to them in parables. In other words, he answers them by telling them figuratively a story. How can Satan— cast out Satan. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. Now, before we look at the second thing Jesus says in verse 27, understand the point Jesus is making. He's saying, your charge that I am doing my work by Satan is absurd because Satan is acting against himself. How so, Jesus? In verse 23, 24, and 25, he's causing his kingdom to self-destruct. That's the first point Jesus makes. This is absurd. How can you make a statement like that? If you really believe that, you are then buying into a proposition, and that proposition is Satan's kingdom is self-destructing. He is causing his kingdom to be divided, to self-destruct. And secondly, you're also saying Jim, that his power is coming to an end. Tim, is that because uh, the demons are of Satan, right? They're Satan's emissaries. They're Satan's servants. Jesus calls them fallen angels, but yes. They serve Satan, and the other point Christ is making then when I was absurd. Then you're saying that His power and His kingdom is coming to an end, and I mean it's like, see, man, this is the point. They, these scribes, the Pharisees, they must explain the supernatural work of Jesus. And how they're trying to explain the supernatural work of Jesus is attributing his power, his authority, his work, including casting out demons to Satan, Beelzebul, the Lord of evil spirits, which is what Beelzebul means. And Jesus says, this is absolutely absurd, because then you're saying that Satan's kingdom is self-destructing, verses 23, 24, and 25. And secondly, you're saying Satan's power is coming to an end, end of verse 26. And then he says a second point, and it's the totally opposite. This explains what I'm doing. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods. And he first binds that strong man, that, and then indeed him he may plunder his house. And so what is he saying in verse 27 in casting out demons? I am plundering the kingdom of Satan. And so the Lord responds in two ways. First, the absurdity of their claim. The absurdity is, you are then saying that Satan's kingdom is self-destructing and it's coming to an end. The second thing he says is, this is what I'm really doing. I'm plundering Satan's kingdom. Now, what I would like you to do is look at with, with me at Matthew chapter 12, and I'm looking at verse 22 and following. Again, I'm in Matthew chapter 12, verse 22 and following. I'm going to read this. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, the hymn would be Jesus, and he healed him. So that the man spoke and Saul, and all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? Now that is a very important piece of information that is not in Mark's shorter account. Remember, Mark is like a docudrama. Quick, short, pithy accounts. And so what Matthew's gospel does is it adds a little more detail. And that detail in verse 23 is really important. Can this be the Son of David? The crowds are asking. Now what does that mean? Son of David, used ten times in the Gospel of Matthew, is the Messianic title. Messiah will be the Son of David. So the crowds are saying, wow, this guy must be the Messiah. So the Pharisees must respond. And they see, in verse 24 of Matthew 12, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. How does Jesus respond? A little fuller account. more comprehensive account. Knowing their thoughts, this is Jesus. He's omniscient. He said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. No city or house divided against itself will stand. And Satan casts out demon, casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I Jesus now personalizes it. If I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. What is important about Matthew's gospel account of the this particular situation, is that Jesus says something that's a very important for us to understand. The power Jesus uses to cast out demons is the Holy Spirit. And that tells us something. When Jesus was baptized, anointed, the Holy Spirit came upon him like a dove, and remember it's a simile, like a dove, Jesus now is telling us what he says in other places as well. I do all my work by the Spirit of God. Did he need to do that? No. He's the second person of the Trinity. But as the Father sent him, he's obeying his Father, he chooses to rely on, be dependent upon the Holy Spirit. And that is why the Apostle Paul will teach us in Ephesians 5.18, you be under the control of the Spirit. We studied that a number of months ago. And this, again, is part of we who are Christ followers now mimic our Lord and Savior Jesus by choosing also to be dependent on the Holy Spirit. And so that Jesus is doing this and saying this is very important for you and me applicationally. As Jesus Christ chose To be under the control and do His work by the power of the Spirit, you and I, in the process of sanctification, choose to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to be under the Holy Spirit's control. And so this is really important, that what Jesus is doing is He's saying, I am not filled with Beelzebul, I'm filled with the Spirit of God. And then that—so then what follows is pretty similar to what's in the Gospel of Mark. And so that, this that little bit of detail. One, the crowds are saying, could this be the Messiah? What is he doing? Is he the Messiah? And so the Pharisees and scribes say, no, 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 there's another explanation. And Jesus comes back and says, I don't do my work by the power of Beelzebub. I do my work by the Spirit of God. I'm dependent upon him. And so then Jesus—I'm going back now to Mark— let me finish this, and I'll take any questions. You go back to Mark verse 28 of chapter three. All sins will be forgiven the children of men, and whatever blasphemies, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal life. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Now, let's talk a little bit about that because, in in Matthew's account. I'm sorry to keep going back and forth, but if you will just go back to Matthew chapter 12 one more time to verse 31. Again, I'll give you a moment if you're flipping around there. Verse 31, Matthew 12. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. So again, Matthew is a little fuller, more complete account, as is very typical when you compare Mark and Matthew. So now we need to talk about this. In both passages, you have that phrase, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, or what is sometimes called the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. But actually, it is better to use the preposition against, blasphemy against. Now, let's talk very briefly about the word blasphemy here for just a minute. To blaspheme, you and I, I could blaspheme you, but usually we speak of blasphemy in God. The word blasphemy means to slander, to slander. Blasphemy is an extreme form of slandering someone. So Jesus is saying, in effect, you are slandering the Holy Spirit. Why? Why are, why are they slandering the Holy Spirit? Because they are slandering him by saying the power is satanic power, not spirit-energized power. That's slandering the spirit. That's a lie. It's blaspheming the Holy Spirit uh, for whom, on, upon whom Jesus was dependent in his three month, three years of public ministry. And Jesus is saying, now this is very, very important. Jesus is not saying these scribes and Pharisees have committed it. He's saying to them, if you continue to say what you are saying and charge what you are charging, this has eternal implications for you. So verse 29 of Mark 3 in verse 31 of of Matthew 12, is a warning. He is warning these men. What you are saying is a serious, serious charge. If you really believe that, and if you continue in this train of thought and this accusation, slandering the Holy Spirit of God, there's an eternal consequence to that. He is warning them. Now let's think about that in context. Jesus utters these words as the Messiah in Israel, presenting himself to the people of Israel as the Messiah. He's doing Messianic miracles. And the teachers of the law are accusing him of doing his miracles by Beelzebul, the Lord of evil spirits, a Canaanite name for Satan. If you guys really believe that, there is no more witness. There's no more revelation as to who I am. This is all the final revelation of who I am. And if you really believe this, and you continue in this belief, this will never be forgiven. Because the eternal consequences of this, the eternal consequences of this are clear. If you reject what the Father says, if you reject what the Son says, and you reject what the Holy Spirit says, there is no more revelation. There is no there's no more content. There's no more detail. Everything is on the table. And you're refusing all to believe all of the revelations as to who I am and what I'm doing and why I'm doing what I'm doing.
2: Jim, question. Um, we have the Trinity are one, with each having a different separate function, and that is true. Taking those con those that scripture to today that you just read right now. Today, if you reject Christ, you have rejected all three. Correct. And and if the Holy Spirit is striving with man, and that's rejected because the crucifixion was a fact, historical fact, for redemption of the entire world. And the Holy Spirit is not just sent to comfort, but also isn't it sent to convict? And if to convict and man rejects, then that's contemporary to what this is saying in Matthew twelve, isn't Isn't that accurate, or is that? I mean, can you comment on that? I just want to bring it here. Um,
0: yeah, I mean, everything you've said, uh, I would agree with. I'm, I'm just, I'm not quite sure what more I can say other than um, what you said. Yeah. It. it, it For you and me uh, applicationally, um, to to attribute the work of Jesus to satanic power is to then deny the work of the Holy Spirit upon whom Jesus chose to be dependent, and that the work today of the Holy Spirit is to convict the uh, world—this is in John's Gospel, chapter 16—to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And to to reject the message of the gospel and to reject the the work of the Holy Spirit in in your your life as He convicts the world of sin righteousness of judgment, there is no more revelation of to who God is. There's no more revelation of, of of the nature of the gospel. There's no more revelation of save you from your sin, from from death and from judgment. And so the, the what I'm trying to get away from is someone. I've had people come up to me, and one person said to me, "Divorce is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, isn't it? Divorce is a is the the, the sin that God can never forgive." That, and I I would look at I looked at that person. And I said, "Where where are you getting that in Scripture? Have I committed?" I've had other people ask me, and that was that was a, I think a ridiculous question, tying it to the blessing of the Holy Spirit. But I've had many people ask me, have I committed the unpardonable sin? And I ask them, what do you mean by that? What did you do that you think is unpardonable? Well, and then sometimes they'll itemize a whole bunch of things. And the answer to that is, the unpardonable sin is to reject Jesus Christ, and to reject the work of Jesus Christ through His Spirit, who convicts you of sin, righteousness, and judgment. That's the unpardonable sin. Don't assign the unpardonable sin label to gross immorality, or to gross profanity, or to to a murderer. Christ died sinners. All sinners. And the unpardonable sin is in the context of what Jesus is teaching here, is you are charging me, Jesus, with with being empowered by Satan, and you're slandering the Spirit in doing that. That was a unique sin. That was a unique sin of these scribes and Pharisees. Mm -hmm. They are attributing the messianic work of Jesus to And Jesus is saying, I don't do my work by the power of Satan. I do my work by the power of the Holy Spirit. And if you really believe I do my work by the power of Satan, that has eternal consequences to it. Verse 29 of of Mark 3 and verse 31 of Matthew 12 is a warning. Jesus is not saying, you guys have committed this. He's warning them. If you continue down this line of thought and accusation, the eternal consequences of that is you you—you will never be forgiven for this. And what that means is you're going to die with this, you will die in your sin, and you will face only judgment. Today, yeah. today for a person to reject the gospel message, willfully and intentionally, is to slander the Holy Spirit. But until you take your last breath, there's yeah. still the hope that yes. that, that person yeah. can, you know, their hard, 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 the Lord Jesus, through his Spirit, can soften that heart so that you will, you will believe. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, go ahead. I do not believe anyone today in the context that Jesus is saying this. He is not on earth. He's not presenting himself as Messiah. He's not doing messianic miracles. That's a unique, a unique sin in a unique set of circumstances. Mm-hmm. Today, any sin that a person commits is not unpardonable or unforgivable yes. right. until the very last moment of their life. The, the the key, the key aspect, is a response of faith mm-hmm. in Jesus. So.
2: Thank, thank you, Jim. I, I just wanted to encourage the men that that if we have a, a brother that's kind of pulled off the side of the road and he thinks he's he's unpardonable and but earlier had received Christ as a savior, we can reach out and help that brother perhaps see and encourage him to um, to to ask forgiveness. And, and encourage him that, no, he hasn't lost his salvation.
0: Well, yes, certainly an encouragement for those who put their faith in the Lord and then have stumbled and fallen. But also, and this has been the context in my life a number of times, is someone who is not a believer. But what is keeping them from taking the step of faith is, I've committed terrible sin things that are unpardonable. God can never forgive me for that. And I always, when my response to that is, okay, where in Scripture can <laughs> you find that? And they will itemize the things that they've done. And I'll, if you if you study the Scriptures, you see that the Lord Jesus delights in saving rebels. He He's delights in remaining. saving people who are the most the utmost sinners, the most egregious sinners, and of course, I mean, you, you just go down, go down the Old Testament narratives. How uh, Abraham? What did he do? Abraham was a liar. He lied to Pharaoh. He lied to Ahithophel, I mean, all of the things he did. He didn't trust God a number of times. How about Jacob? Jacob was the conniver, a manipulator. That's what heel catcher means. That's his name. What about? What about? What about David? And even Moses. How many times Moses keeps pushing back on God? No. He gives God five reasons why you made the wrong choice. I am not going to be the... Lord. I mean, it's God delights in them. Of course, the Apostle Paul. I mean, Peter. Every single person that God calls is a rebel. Amen. And the the unpardonable sin today is not the unique aspects of this teaching in Mark 3 the unpardonable sin is up until your last breath you continue to reject Jesus as your savior that is the unpardonable sin
1: thank okay, you uh, can I ask a lighter more a less more technical question yeah in uh, we've been bouncing back and forth between Matthew 12 and Mark 3 and the holy spirit or Spirit, Numa is it's rendered in both places, but in Mark it adds Hagios. Is there and they render it um, the Holy Ghost, where it's just Numa and Holy Spirit. And I'm this is out of ESV um, in Mark. Is there any significance to that? Why why do they take that?
0: I think I no, I honestly don't. Think there's any significance to that? These are often interchangeable.
1: So, Holy uh, Ghost just Pneuma or Hagios Pneuma are equal in Greek.
0: They, they are. Yeah, it's, they are. It's kind of like
1: saying Dr. Jim Ekman or Jim Ekman. They're kind
0: of the or, same. Is, or, is preferab- or preferably just Jim. Right. But yes, all referring to the same so, function. Yeah. It. Thank you. Yeah. And actually, there are, uh, there are not many, but there are even a couple of instances in the New Testament where instead of pneuma, uh you'll even have them use uh, chrama, which is really unusual, but you'll even see that. All right. If there are no other questions, let's go to the second loaf of bread in our sandwich. Dr. Ekman, I have a question. Oh, yes, John, it's been good. I haven't because seen I you have... in four months. It's really a delight to see to, your face, can you hear me all right? I yeah, can there, hear you there, perfectly I, I had to step out a few minutes. Did you talk about verse twenty seven um, tying up a strong man and and plundering the house? Did I did that okay again uh, if you go back uh, to uh, there's a footnote here that Jesus did that very thing by essentially tying up Satan. And and, and and then going ahead and plundering his house by casting out devils. That's, that's is, correct. Is that your interpretation of that? That's exactly what it means. That's exactly okay. what it means. Okay, thank you. And it says, as, as you go back to that term that's used there in verse 24, it's a parable. He's telling a story, but that story is clearly a reference to Jesus. The strong man's house plundering his goods, that's Jesus plundering the kingdom of Satan. And today, um, another way in which to look at that, even today, is every time a human being puts their faith in Christ, Satan's kingdom is plundered. The kingdom of darkness loses a citizen. The kingdom of light gains a citizen. That's not an original thought with me, by the way, but that that Jesus' work of salvation, his his gospel message, is 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 in effect the plundering of Satan's kingdom. This is how Jesus is building the kingdom of God on earth. Now, the final stage, I'm going beyond the text here, but the final stage, of course, will be when he returns his second time and and then defeats his enemies at the Mount uh, uh, Armageddon, all that material there, and then begins to set up his kingdom. That's the final stage of the plundering of Satan's kingdom. But now, Jesus, and this is what is important about the gospel, Jesus is plundering Satan's kingdom through the gospel. He will finalize that plundering at his second coming. When he enters Jerusalem on a white horse, heads north to the valley of Megiddo, defeats the armies there, throws the Antichrist and the false prophet, in, and so on. So that, there's a finality to this. But the methodology that God is using now is through the gospel. And we still we still see people struggling with that. Well, that's the gospel. The gospel message, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for your sins. He defeated sin. He defeated the devil. He defeated death. That's the gospel message. Don't you want to accept that? Don't you want to embrace that? Don't you want to put your faith in the one who did that for you? That's how he's plundering Satan's kingdom. All right, let's go to the second piece of bread then. This is Mark's favorite literary device. He goes back to the family of Jesus in verse 31. Verse 20, 21, his brothers and sisters believed that Jesus was a mentally unbalanced religious fanatic. Verse 31, and his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they said to him and called him. Now, we're assuming, uh, I think this is a legitimate inference. He is in in Peter's house, because when he was in Capernaum, he stayed in Peter's house. And look what happens. And a crowd was sitting around him and said, your mother, your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered, where is? Excuse me, where are my mother, my brothers? Verse 34, and looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother, my sister, my mother. What in the world is going on here? Jesus is sharing something here that's wonderful. I have a biological family, Jesus is saying, but that biological family pales in significance to the spiritual family I'm building. It's the family of God. And this is a theme that is picked up by the Apostle Paul in Galatians 4 and Romans chapter 8. That when we put our faith in Jesus, we are adopted into the family of God. And God now becomes our heavenly father. And so Jesus is introducing this. It's a profound thought. It's a profound doctrinal truth. It's a profound theological proclamation. J.I. Packer in his great, great book, knowing God. At the end of the book, he has a chapter on the the sons of the Father. I think that's what it's called. But at the beginning of that chapter, he said, the highest privilege of the believer is to call God Father. Now, that's one of those sentences. You have to think about that for a little bit. Meditate on that. Chew on that. And this is what Jesus is declaring here. I have a biological family. But my priority now is the spiritual family of God that I'm building. And everyone that puts their faith in me is my brother, my sister. It's a new family. It's the family of God. And that is why you and I have the inestimable privilege of addressing God as Father. I'm sure many of you, when you begin your prayer you know, wherever you're praying or over whether it's silent and personal or in your church or whatever, often we start our prayers, with like, Heavenly Father, and then we pray. And we end our prayers with, in Jesus' name. We're claiming that authority of Jesus in praying, which we have the right to do, according to John 14 and John 16. And so Paul, in both Galatians 4 and Romans 8, takes it another step. Not only can you call him Heavenly Father— You can also call him Abba. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane in Mark 14, and he prays to Abba. Abba is an Aramaic name for father, but it's very difficult to translate it. It's a term of intimacy. That's why often you see it paraphrased as daddy. And that's just, I mean, this is astonishing. This is an astonishing truth here that the Lord Jesus is placing on the doctrinal table for us to understand. When you put your faith in Jesus, you become his brother. You're in his family. And has Jesus prayed to the Father? You and I can pray to the Father. It's often said we pray to the Father with the authority of Jesus through the Holy Spirit. Now, that's a doctrinal way of putting it. Just if you don't follow that's okay. But the Lord is really saying something here that is wonderful, it's comforting, but it's strategic. You and I are in the family of God, and you and I now have the privilege of calling God Heavenly Father, Abba. And so the sandwich makes sense because the contrast is between those scribes and Pharisees who were blaspheming the Spirit and those who accept who Jesus is. Now, enter the family of God. They're not slandering God anymore. They're in His family. What a marvelous contrast. How are people responding to Jesus? Mark helps us to see some are responding in faith, some are rejecting Him with slanderous accusations. All right, any questions on this final uh, little part of chapter three, which really finalizing the little sandwich literary device that Mark loves to use? You'll see it. I'll point it out again and again throughout his gospel.
2: Just, just one comment from you, Jim. Uh, you know, it says, Suffer the little children to come unto me, for such is the kingdom of heaven. And I'm just wondering if we aren't included in that group of children, while we think of ourselves as sophisticated adults with great discernment, et cetera, et cetera, that we are, in essence, compared to God our Father as, as children.
0: Well, Jesus, what Jesus yeah. is saying there is uh, similar to what there are about three or four times in the Gospels where Jesus um, will... Talk about the faith that is required is a childlike faith. It's a humble, dependent, childlike faith, like a little child who trusts his or her parents. And you know, it's a humble, dependent faith. There's nothing terribly uh, sophisticated or, or, or in any way uh, deserving. It's just, hey, Daddy, I'm in trouble. Help me. It's a childlike faith in dependence. And so Jesus will use concept, I believe it's four different times, the example of a child is the kind of faith that I'm interested in, a childlike faith, because it is childlike, childlike response of humility and dependence and faith in me that is, is the key attribute of kingdom citizens. All right. Uh, oh, my goodness. It's almost a quarter of. Well, let me. Um, let's see. What do I do here for two minutes? What we're going to see here in chapter four of the Gospel of Mark are a series of parables that Jesus is going to teach. And I think most of these are going to be, certainly the first one is going to be perhaps very familiar to you. But next week, when we begin, I want to ask and try to answer this question. Why does Jesus so frequently teach in parables? What is a parable, and why does he teach using parables? And what we're interested in—this will be the second point— when we study a parable of Jesus, what is his main point? A parable doesn't mean you try to figure out what every single person and every single aspect and every single characteristic of the story, what does that mean? If you try to do that, you're going to go crazy. There are about 9,742 different interpretations of each one of these little aspects of each parable. That's, if you try to do that, you go crazy. The, the thing you want is what's the key point Christ is teaching? What is the parable? Why does he teach in parables? And what's the main point? The first one that we're going to study next week, it's fairly not real long but fairly long, not as long as in some of the other gospels, but it's the parable of the soil or the parable of the sower. And what what you have in this parable, and if you have time, I'd like you to read I'd like you to read this parable, the parable of the sower or the parable of the soils. I prefer to call it the parable of the soils. Because what Jesus is interested in here is, why are people responding to me differently? Some people are accepting me. Some people are rejecting me. Some people are thinking about it. And some people are in the process of rejecting me. And Jesus says, it all depends on the soil. And that's the point how is the soil prepared to receive the message? And it's it's going to be interesting. As we study this together, he's going to talk about four different types of soil. And the response of each type of soil is different to the word of God. And I want to go, I'll do this next week too, because Matthew's account of this is, uh, fills in a little more detail about what Jesus is teaching. So, what is a parable, why does Jesus teach in parable, and what is the point of each parable? So when we're done with this passage of chapter 14, I want to see from each one of you, it's a homework assignment, a sentence. This is the point of this parable. You're not going to write 17 paragraphs. You're going to write one sentence. This is the point of this parable. And if you can't do that, I failed in my job as the teacher of this Bible class. So that's what we're going to do as we start chapter 14 next week. I've introduced it, I've laid it out, and I've asked you to read the parable of the soils. I don't know if you'll do that. There's no way I can hold you accountable. But God knows. Isn't that terrible? That's a terrible way to motivate. it. One more thing. What, uh, in Matthew, what uh, chapter and verse. Matthew 13. Thank you. Matthew chapter 13. Okay.
2: Thank
0: you. All right, I'm going to pray because I'm getting late here. I got to get to thank my you. thank you very much, Jim. You're welcome. Father, thank you for our time around the Word of God. Thank you for uh that that absolutely fantastic teaching that Jesus, as we ended chapter three, that Jesus laid on the table for us. When we put our faith in the Lord Jesus, we enter the family of God. And Jesus, in a way, it's, it's not blasphemy. It's like our big brother, the Heavenly Father. We can call him Abba. There's nothing we can't share with him, nothing we can't tell him. There's nothing that he doesn't care about. As J.I. Packer says, the highest privilege of the believer is to call God Father. That's wonderful. What a great truth. And that's what Jesus has shared with us. And we just thank you for our our time together. Thank you for the word of God. Thank you for the privilege you give to me to teach this group and those who will uh, presumably uh, attach attach their their, their computer to the podcast and listen to it at a future date. So Lord, we know that when the word of God is taught, it never returns void. It always bears fruit. So I'm trusting in the lives of each one of these men and others who listen that your fruit will be born in their lives. We love you. We thank you that we can call you our Heavenly Father. And it is in the name and authority of Jesus we ask this. Amen. All right, we'll see you next week, guys. Take care.